This is the Real Estate Shop, where each episode will bring you a top industry expert to share their current programs or projects that are making an impact in our communities today. Be sure to check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In this episode of The Developers, we have the privilege of tag teaming Gregory Rees and Leslie Smallwood, co-founders of the Philadelphia-based Mosaic Development Partners. Let's join in on this incredible interview to learn how they got started. And Leslie and I have talked about this for some years, that, you know, it'd be great to share, you know, our experiences and our journey, essentially, and what we've come through, because we we literally started from nothing. Yeah. Greg, I still remember your story when we we were at the happy hour. Yeah. And you're telling me when you left the corporate world, you, you went all in and things didn't go as planned. Right? <laughs> that, that would be an understatement. <laughs> so that, that still resonates I with planned, me, man. I planned to eat, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't happening. I was like, you know what? I'm not eating. Like, literally not eating. My kids aren't eating. My wife's not eating. Awesome. So, so it, it was, that was my experience going from, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, right? Right. To, right. To, uh, and Leslie and I met at the Goldenberg Group. I don't know if you know that, Steve. We were both. Uh, yeah, we were both I knew Leslie was there. I didn't think you were there, too. Yeah, well, Ken was a close friend of mine. I, I, I had known him for many years, but I didn't know what he did for a living. Uh, in fact, we our kids grew up together. And uh, and I was in the pharmaceutical industry at travel. Uh, traveled the world, frankly, and uh, Ken talked me out of not staying in the pharmaceutical industry, frankly, mm-hmm. and told me that I should stay at home and be closer to my family because I wasn't at that time. I was really never home. And I said, well, what would I do? He's like, well, you should come work for me. And I said, I didn't even know you worked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I never saw the guy in anything other than sandals. I'm serious, and Leslie will attest to it. He, you know, he never came to work in a in a shirt that was ironed. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a, a disheveled mess. And if you didn't know that he was Ken Goldenberg, you would think he was a homeless guy. But wow. you know, then he drove me around one day and showed me all of the real estate that he owned, and I was shocked. And I didn't, I didn't even know you could own real estate like that. You know, he took me to a Lowe's shopping center and a Home Depot, and. And he's like, I own this. I'm like, well, how do you own Lowe's? He's like, well, they rent from me. I said, how does rent Lowe's rent from you? <laughs> and so I'm like, how does that work? I didn't know. I was in front yeah. of And so, uh, so he's like, well, why don't you join and figure it out? Come, come, come learn the business. And, and uh, I joined, and that's how I met Leslie. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing because it's not an industry that you can kind of learn your way into uh, in in school, for example, mm-hmm. there's not there's not a course you can really take to be a real estate developer. No. Uh, it's 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 a business that is largely that has largely been driven by wealthy friends and family, right? Okay. So when you see you know the Trump organization, the Durst organization, uh, the, those are those are family legacies that have been built up over years of wealth, right? And some of them have turned into large corporations, right? And uh, now you have REITs and you've had REITs that have been large investment uh, portfolios that are focused on whether it's apartment, whether it's shopping center related. Uh, it could be now it's there's there's office REITs. There are uh, REITs that are only designed to support like Amazon warehouse. Right. So. So those are the real estate industry classes. And what Leslie and I found in RIP. Goldenberg was that nobody looked like us were a part of it. And so when we talked to Ken about getting and having him really support more black developers, he said, well, I have the two of you. Like, what what else do we need to do? And and I thought, well, that's interesting because we were longtime friends and it kind of slapped me in the face to be funny because I knew him on a personal level. I didn't know him from a business level. And I thought, well, this guy doesn't really want us to, to succeed in this way. And about two months later, he actually brought one of his black male friends in to help him start a real estate business. And, and, and this is after Leslie and I approached him about helping us start one. He said no to us and yes to a guy that knew nothing. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you know, over time, we just started getting more frustrated because we, we reached out. We were able to get a couple of people of color to be able to be part of the, uh, the real estate infrastructure at Goldberg Group. So we were a, a guy named Ken Lawrence, who is now a county commissioner, but he was a consultant. We were able to get him hired at oh, Goldenberg. Yeah. 
Yeah, Melanie Shaw. We got her as a consultant hired. <laughs> that's that's my Alexa. Uh, <laughs> we we got uh, a couple of attorneys, uh, African American attorneys, to come into his ecosystem where they could be a part of the development world, but nothing beyond that. I mean, we were really pushing to get engineers, uh, construction companies, architects, and we were getting no traction. And and I I remember going to a, a holiday party. And you think about Philadelphia, I don't know if you all know Philly, but, you know, we had Blackstein there, Blackstein's company, Tower Investments. We had uh, Ken's company, Dranoff was there, uh, PMC, you know, it's like the Brandywine, the top five or six developers. And one of the guys came up to me and he's like, man, isn't this great? I'm like, oh, well, it's great. He's like, we can control all of the city. And it just, again, kind of slapped me in the face because, you know, I said to Leslie, you know, when somebody makes a comment like that, they have no regard for the fact that nobody lo looks like you is participating in this. And so we just decided collectively we wanted to go and try it on our own and build our own business that had a different mindset about inclusion. We, from the very beginning, we knew we wanted people and businesses of color to participate. This is back in 2008. Uh, and we also knew that we needed to work in neighborhoods that were being neglected because we saw significant investment going in certain neighborhoods and zero investment going in others. So we frankly went after the two most difficult aspirations when we started our company, uh, but we believed that that was the real gap that existed based on our experiences working with all of these large developers in Philadelphia. So Leslie and I started Mosaic. There were actually four of us when we started. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Leslie and I were the only ones to actually quit our jobs, though. So, <laughs> so uh, you can imagine when we uh, started talking about what our interest would be, everybody wanted to split 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%, right? Four people. We said, but Leslie and I are the only ones that quit our jobs. <laughs> like, well, it's still working. <laughs> that was that work. <laughs> so they said, well, you know, we're not, we're not ready to leave our work. I said, well, I did. And, and that was the conversation I had with you, Kirk, and I went all in. Mm -hmm. you know, and this is what, you know, I have a wife and three kids, right. uh, you know, and, and kids ready to, one of them, you know, not far from, from uh, a couple of years away from going to college. And so it was a huge risk uh, to take. And so Leslie and I decided that it was best if the two of us just go it alone. Uh, and we started really working on fundamentals uh, in 2008. Steve, I don't know if you remember, but it was a terrible time in Philadelphia for real estate development. It's when the economy crashed. Yep. Uh, and it's when really everything shut down. We started the business in July of 2008. And by October, nothing had moved. Like you couldn't get anything done. And so we spent the next few months talking to lenders. You know, we talked with TRF. We talked with, you named the bank. They take us out to lunch. We had a really wonderful lunch. We did that for about 18 months with just absolutely no traction. It was always a no. Uh, and so we, we were certainly uh, disillusioned. But what we did, I think that was smart, was that we started creating our own milestones of success. So, so the one thing I remember from the pharmaceutical industry was value was always measured in the pharmaceutical industry on your ability to build a pipeline. And... And so the real estate industry is really no different. People look at you not based on project you have, but the pipeline that you have and the projects you've done. And so Leslie and I early on focused on how do we build a pipeline with absolutely no money, right? Which is you know, a tall task, uh, but it's also, uh, it's also a requirement uh, for companies of color because we don't come from families of wealth. So we have to think about what is the way to do that. And one of the first things we did was we went to uh, the school district of Philadelphia. They had a number of properties at that time that were for sale. And I don't know if you know Edison High School, the former Edison High School on, on, uh, on Lehigh Avenue, 7th and Lehigh. That property was for sale for, I think, $2.7 million. It was a full city block. It, uh, it, Edison, uh, Curvin, and, and I'm sorry, um, I don't know your name. Victoria. 
Victoria? Okay. <laughs> Fairbairn and Victoria. Uh, Edison High School has a, an incredible history. It used to be an all-male high school. It was around for over 100 years. And it educated some of Philly's top male athletes, elected officials. Ken Frazier from Merck went to Edison High. Oh, wow. He ended up becoming the CEO of Merck. You had some Olympians that were there. Teddy Pendergrass went to Edison High. Uh, so really some known people were there. Edison High was also known because more people that went to Edison High died in Vietnam than any other high school in the country. So 64 high school graduates from Edison went to Vietnam and died. And, uh, and so that was the history that the neighborhood remembered. So Leslie and I said, well, let's try and buy this property. Well, we didn't have any money. <laughs> and so it was the asking price was two and a 2.7 million. And we said, well, it's a bad economy. Nobody's building anything. Let's just give them a price we think we can afford. And so the school district wanted to get it off their books because it was a 500,000 square foot building where there was significant vandalism. There's a lot of drugs going on in that building. You know, anytime we went in, we had to go in with police escorts. I mean, there was significant meth methadone uh, activity. There was heroin activity. I mean, it was a drug haven because it was such a big, empty building. And so uh, we offered them $600,000 for the property. And they didn't know what we were going to do with it because it took up the whole city block. We, our plan was we knew we needed to tear it down and build a community sh shopping center. But they accepted the offer. And then Leslie and I got scared because we're like, <laughs> okay, so they're they're asking two point seven million. We offer six hundred. They 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 accept six hundred, but we didn't we didn't have six hundred thousand. So we're like, uh oh, now that now what? <laughs> so we so I mean, just we started thinking. Leslie's like, well, you know what? Let's ask them for a loan. Let's ask them to help us out. And so we, we went back to the school district and they said, well, what do you guys need? We said, well, we don't have the 600000 but we have an idea we think will work. We believe this needs to be a grocery store. It was a food desert. Uh, we're, going, we're going to tear this building down. We're going to put a grocery store here. And uh, we just don't have all, all the elements together to make it work. They said, well, what do you have? We said, we have, we can come up with $25,000. And so they said, Okay, they accepted that as a down payment, but they said they had to get it off their books. So they took the twenty five thousand, sold us the property, and then kept it on. And then, well, they sold it to us, but we had a leaseback situation, so it went off of their books. But they didn't transfer ownership to us until we were able to get the whole deal done. Mm -hmm. So for twenty five thousand dollars, we got a two point seven million dollar asset. Uh, just because we we refused to say no to this thing and we were trying anything we can to have a lifeline, right? But we knew once they accepted the 600,000, that was milestone one. Once they accepted the 25,000, that was milestone two. The next thing we had to do was get a grocery store to say if we tore everything down, they would come there. So we, we took that approach and uh, we just started saying to ourselves, we, if we think traditionally, we're not going to be able to make it. We have to we have to come up with some new ideas and continue to build a pipeline. Same thing happened with our student housing development at 10th and Diamond. I don't know if you know Diamond Green, Stu. Yes. The 350-bed student housing development. First, it was the largest modular building constructed in the city of Philadelphia in 2012. And we were able to build it. It's 128,000 square feet. We built it in nine months broke ground and opened in nine months, which is uh, pretty phenomenal. We haven't been able to do that since or before. <laughs> so, uh, but what we did there was we actually partnered with a CDC uh, to work on that property and have the CDC become a part owner in the project. They own 22% of the project. And we brought a development partner in to help finance it. Uh, and actually, that's that we still own that project. That's been operating now. It's been doing great up until COVID. You can imagine with COVID, you know, the different product types have different success measures. That's uh, that was some of the issues that we work with. But really, I, the, the example I was making early on was to get started. We had to do some really pretty incredible things. 
We had to take risks that we that you would ordinarily think weren't possible, but then we, we had to maneuver, constantly maneuver to keep uh, the ability for us to grow our pipeline. So our investment thesis is don't lose money. <laughs> we're not doing anything for charity because you can't take that mindset these projects are way too hard to to be successful but if you think it's going to break even or potentially lose money it's going to lose money and so we we are very careful about ensuring that at least on paper these projects can sustain themselves once they're built. We're not looking to have any additional assistance after, after they're open and operating. The assistance we look for is in the very beginning. We've used, Steve, you mentioned new market tax credits. We've done four new market tax credit deals. We've done, every, you know, we've done a, a light tech deal uh, uh, for a veterans housing project that we did at Edison Square. That was our third phase over there. Uh, but, but our goal is really uh, wealth building. And not just for us, but for all of the communities of people who we work with. So when you think about that, that value creation in real estate, a lot, and it's different from house flipping because house flipping, you can go in, you can take an existing structure, you can add value to it and sell it, right? You have your crew. But when you're doing development, you have to think early on. So there's the land cost, then there's professional services. So you've got to pay an architect at a minimum today is the architects we're working with this summer around $250 an hour up to $500 an hour. We have legal services. We have civil engineering, we have structural engineering. And then you're paying a general contractor their fee plus whatever bond requirement it is. And you have to make money above all of that and above your investors. <laughs> so, so the project has to be so good for everybody in that network to be able to be profitable you can't go in with the mindset of losing money. You just can't because you will. I mean, that's the reality. If you think you're going to break even or you want to be a charity, you should be a charity. <laughs> but this business is not built for that. It's not. It doesn't work. Uh, and it's and they don't create sustainable models. The one thing that's been uh, the investment strategy that we've tried to get is investors to look because we're working in more more. more more disparaged communities. We've been we've tried to find an investor who's willing to take lower returns, uh, somewhere in the you know the eight to ten percent range. Haven't found them yet. Not thirteen years. Uh, <laughs> what we have found is more investors willing to invest at a higher return, but we haven't found investors willing to invest at a lower return. But they they actually keep you honest. I mean, when you bring in that that equity investor, they're they're reminding you every day that they're there to make money. And I think it's healthy in a way that it forces you to really think about how you're building your investment model, because that's what we're all doing is we're building not just buildings, but we're building investment models. We're building each time we build one, it is a separate investment structure. It's got a new set of investors. It's got a new address. It's got a new lender. So every time it's setting up a separate business and your model has to be one that you find that works. Our model works and because we do use a lot of new market tax credits, uh, we have used uh, LIHTC, not that much. Uh, we are looking at how do we build modularly because we know that modular construction done correctly really does level the playing field in terms of driving higher quality housing at a lower consistent price. But, uh, the key is finding a whole team that understands modular development so you can get the level of quality that you want out of it. And the that it's designed correctly. So we've been looking at every aspect of, the, of, of what the cost structure is for real estate uh, from the very beginning, from architects to engineers to construction type, uh, all the way through to the investment type, to the return profile. And we're building a model around that to try and really minimize the overall cost of the project so we can maximize either not necessarily investment to our investors, but maybe we can provide more affordable offerings to our tenants. So if we have a, uh, uh, we, we do almost exclusively mixed income developments. We don't do just market rate. We don't believe in it. We believe that there's, every building should have a mix of people, a mix of communities of income uh, levels, whether you're a doctor or a garbage worker or 
a student, you ought to be able to live in the same space. And, and the space ought to be of a quality that everybody can live there. But, that, but the financing around that is more complicated. You know, it's, it's, it's much more uh, desirable for developers to build just a market rate building that is a luxury building and to capture that network of people who are willing to pay a premium and then your performer looks a lot better. It's just not the decision we made about building our model. We don't want to do that. We don't believe that people need us in that space. So that's where the complexity comes in uh, for us is building that, that level. Yeah, that great segue. Um, one of the questions we had was, was like, how do you go about generally financing your developments? But even more importantly, you know, when you guys went in, uh, a big part of financing is you know, the personal guarantees. So we going, you know, when you guys went back to Edison High School and kind of progressed, how did that look for you? Did you get to bring guys in to guarantee? Bless totally. And yeah, I mean, we were willing to give our personal guarantees, and we did, but nobody cared. So, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, oh, this is your guarantee. Uh, you can keep it. <laughs> yeah. it's funny, man, that's the number one question we get from uh, aspiring developers. How do we get over that hurdle of personal guarantee? If you want to sit down here, I grab a seat. Leslie's right here. She's coming around the table. Okay, okay. Hi. Hey, Leslie, how you doing? Oh, I joint venture partnerships with high net worth developers. So there were there are two oh, issues that yeah, Les is going to call it. There are two issues that you're going to be faced with. You know what? You, uh, yeah. One is is track record, which is a big one. And the other is uh, the other is financing and the whole issue around guarantees. You know what's interesting, Steve, is most of the people we deal with aren't required to provide personal guarantees. They they are only we're required to buy them. <laughs> so, right. Funny how that right. works. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny how that works? The people <laughs> that can most guarantee a project don't have to. The people that exactly. can least guarantee the project have to. So <laughs> well, that's that's credit, right? That's right. the way. You know, that's how credit works, works, which is the fundamental right. problem that we believe is discriminatory in its basis, right? No question. So so I mean, Leslie. You, Absolutely. I mean, and that's why we had to, like Greg said, we had to partner with high worth individuals. But the minute you have to do that, you know, you have to give up, you know, a good portion of your project. Because I, I remember when we started the company, one someone said to us, cash is king, right? Yeah. Cash is king. And it rules. Um, so, you know, and they 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 leverage that. They hold that over your over your head. So that's why when we're talking to the city now and we're talking to people, how can they make a difference for black developers, create this mechanism for credit enhancement so that we don't have to do this, create this, you know, fund of money that can offer letters of credit, um, anything that's going to really bolster up uh, black developers' uh, balance sheets, that old system. Because it's always going to be an impediment because we're so far behind and playing catch up that there's it's 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 nearly impossible. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, I will about- say Fulton Bank. I don't know if you talked about Fulton yeah. Bank. They uh, we really, haven't gotten it. We're just um, getting to the finance part. But. And, OK, because I will be on a commercial for Fulton Bank. <laughs> they, they have been <laughs> fabulous. TRF was yes. great to us, too. I mean, they we got started. The reinvestment they was great. Not all CDFIs have created the same year. No, we've had got that good right. experiences yes. with CDFIs and we've had bad experiences. Ooh, 
Yes. Uh, we, yes. We've been through all of them. We've dealt with all of the lenders, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank, PNC, Fulton Bank, TRF, List. I mean, we've had loans or loan circumstances with every one of these folks, and we can give you the list of who's who's really trying to help the cause and who's not. Right. Fulton Bank rises to the top, to Leslie's yeah. point. There's no yeah. question. They yeah. have just their willingness to, to, to really be creative, think outside the box, be flexible. Um, and, and, you know, and most know where we are, meet us where we are rather meet than us have us where, meet yes. them where they are. That's excellent. The excellent. Yes, it is. That's well, well said. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so, but I don't think you get around having uh, somebody that's high net worth early on. Uh, yeah. to, uh, particularly if you don't have a track record. That's the other issue is you can't even just partner with somebody with liquidity. You need to partner with somebody with liquidity who's done it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's, part of the, that's part of what you have to do. Got it. Uh, yeah, especially early on, because Greg, you probably mentioned, you know, when we both met at the Goldenberg Group and we thought that we were going to be able to kind of point to that experience um, and use that to really build our company. some of the some of the stuff you've done or even having a pipeline? Yeah, I mean we we have done uh, about 120 million dollars in direct cost business in the neighborhoods. What we're most proud of is that we haven't focused on center city to to create uh, the model that we've created. We've gone directly into the neighborhoods and invested in neighborhoods that everybody else has neglected. And I won't say everybody, because there are a number of black developers that have tried to gain traction and doing it. We've actually had success doing it. Uh, and we've been in, uh, look, we've been in Fairhill, Germantown, uh, Strawberry Mansion, Brewery Town, Sharswood, Blumberg. We're in West Philly now. We're in another part of Germantown. We're in North Philly. We're, we're moving into Tioga. We have a project there. I mean, we're in, we're in neighborhoods where there's significant blight and we're finding solutions. And that's what we believe to be our skill set. What we've also recognized is if we can develop there, we can develop anywhere. So, yeah. so you know, the, the other neighborhoods are not that tough. We now have developers that are coming to us to do developments in Center City with them uh, and, and a number of significant developments. So right now we have a, a large project under construction. Leslie, if you want to talk about Chargewood, Chargewood Ridge. Yeah. Um, so that was a project actually that we started in 20, what, 17? 17. Yeah, 2017. It's uh, in partnership with the Philadelphia Housing Authority. It's uh, at 20th and Ridge. It's literally right across the street of Jefferson Street. Um, and that's where... Um, PHA built their new headquarters. And that was all really to anchor that corridor, the Ridge Avenue corridor there, and to be able to play a part in a larger uh, neighborhood master plan that uh, PHA put together. Uh, they also are the recipient of a choice, a $30 million choice grant. Um, for that neighborhood master plan. So what they brought us in to do, and it was kind of interesting, we were brought in to do the other side of Ridge Avenue, kind of a walkable um, individual, yeah, individual row homes and and, uh, CMX2 structures that were partially occupied, primarily not occupied, um, which was a lot more difficult to to really make something happen because it wasn't like a, a large consolidated site that everyone could say, oh, you could, you know, build something large here. But we were still making traction. We were really securing um, interest of tenants, getting LOIs, and they had hired another developer, um, not of color, um, to develop the shopping center. And it was just lagging. It really, I guess they just weren't giving it the type of attention that it, it really deserved. So their time uh, expired under contract with the housing authority. And they looked at us and said, you know what? You've got like three executed 
LOIs? Do you think you can bring those tenants from your side of the street that you're working on and bring them in to the shopping center? And can you help us finish a grocery uh, market deal? And we're looking at them like, oh, I see. Uh, we, this said no. <laughs> <laughs> we did we originally say that. Give us a project, like, That's right. We have, we have That's right. Give it to our tenants. No, That's right. That's exactly right. So they did say that the time was expiring uh, or or just had recently expired on the other side. So we did negotiate the deal to then become the uh, developer for the shopping center. Um, now, it, it immediately became a very large project at that point. So uh, just for resources, we asked, uh, and actually PHA thought that we needed to ask, because it was such a large project, to bring in another developer. So we asked Shift to join us on that project. So we are partnering with Shift um, on that. And that's a 52, well, now it's <laughs> it's, prob- it's really more like a $54 million project. Yeah, it's, it's um, probably Yeah, based upon all of the uh, increase of material costs that has been, um, has incurred over the last six months, we have been right in the midst of it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's probably a $54 million project. It's a supermarket. It's um, a, an additional yeah, 50,000 square feet of other retail, which urgent care, we have Santander, um, we've got wings to go, we've got a restaurant coming, and then about 8,000 square feet more space that we are now leasing, but wanted to wait until there was some some real products, construction going on on the site. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very complicated capital stack, and you know what those look like. Units, thousand, right, 100, I'm sorry. Yeah, 100. Yes, thank you, Greg. Um, So complicated capital stack. We've got $28.5 million of new market tax credit allocation on it. We've got uh, RACP, two allocations of of RACP grants. We've got multimodal grants. We've got Mm -hmm. subordinate debt from PIBDC. We've got Fulton in the fold. Yeah. Capital One is our new market tax credit investor. We had to create a condo structure uh, to make it work. We have a ground lease with the housing authority. So it was... It's one of the most complicated deals that you can imagine. Yeah. The the legal fees alone were over a million dollars for that structure. Oh, easily. Easily. And then then we had the audacity to even create more complexity by doing the crowdfund, right? Yeah, then we did a community crowdfund. (laughs) That's the other thing that, that we, we decided, and Leslie and I were trying, because again, our whole model is built. Keep in mind, too, our, all, everything that we do is designed that we're not just doing this for Mosaic, but you know, in all of our projects moving forward, anywhere from 50 to 100% of our professional services are, are either uh, African-American or women-owned businesses. I mean, we are, we are uh, identifying those key companies and bringing them with us in everything that we're doing. The, the one thing that we found from a financing standpoint is very difficult to get African-American investment and community investment. And Leslie was able to, we had had multiple meetings, I think two years worth of meetings to try and get local folks to invest. We started out, we thought it would be a small amount. We said, well, what, they said, what are you looking for? We're like, okay, we're going to start small at about $75,000 for, for investment. And everybody left. Nobody came back. Then we had the next meeting. We're like, okay, we're going to try 50 this time because now we'll get people. Nobody came back. We went to 25, <laughs> then 10, then 5. We got no right. takers at 5. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, zero takers at 5. This is 10 meetings in. I got to tell you, we're talking about, I don't know, five, 600 people, Steve, that we were trying wow. to get. No takers at $5,000 investment. And Leslie's like, well, Obama did this thing. It's a crowdfund. And uh, and it allows non-accredited investors to go in next to accredited investors. We actually don't have a problem getting people to invest half a million to a million dollars in our projects each. They just never look like us. Right. So, but Leslie found this community crowdfund where you could invest as little as five hundred dollars and get the same return as if you're investing five hundred thousand. So we decided to include that in all of our projects. We started with our Germantown project yeah. and now that Sharswood project, we have it and we're doing it. Frankly, Leslie's working on it now at the Navy Yard. We're going right. to do it. At- so yeah. it's going to be citywide. It'll be a citywide investment model for as little as, it might be a thousand, I think, Leslie, what do you think? 
It right. might be a thousand, but it's still going to be a very it's achievable amount. So, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Yeah, that's your so we're, we're working that out now. Tell about the Navy Yard project before I jump on to the uh, next one, because, I mean, being from Philadelphia, the Navy Yard's always been there, and now you know, they've got it to the point where you tell me that it's almost going to be a city within a city. It will be. Oh my gosh, we are in the throes. We're like drinking water through, through a fire hose on that project. We're, we're designing the first phase of so the Navy Yard is a multi-phase, multi-year project. Where we signed an agreement with PIDC. When did we sign it? March. March. Mm-hmm. We were awarded the project last July. It took us right. until this till March to actually negotiate and sign the agreement. So it tells you how long this stuff takes. That's like PC, Kirby. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the sign of the agreement. Now, the agreement is a $2.6 billion project. So we are the co-development lead, along with a group called Ensemble Development, uh, Ensemble Investments. They're out of Long Beach, California. Uh, good group of people. Uh, they're big, big-time hotel developers around, uh, mostly in California and Phoenix, and in, I think they have some some uh, property in Vegas. But they they came to Philadelphia. They built the Marriott Courtyard in in the Navy Yard. That was how they first got into the space. And then when Liberty Property Trust sold uh, their company, Ensemble bought all of their buildings at the Navy Yard. So they own about. $350 million worth of assets at the Navy Yard already. And they called us and asked us to partner with them uh, on this project, on the Navy Yard project. So we went uh, we went against 35 companies. They shortlisted it to five. The five companies were, Gil- I think, Gilbane and Zaire Lynch were partnered. We were partnered with Zaire. Yeah, uh, we were partnered with uh, with Ensemble, Trammell Crow is a part of it. Uh, who Heinz out of Texas? Hines. Hoffman. Hoffman and Hoffman too? and Hoffman that did the wharf. Right. Hoffman, right. Hoffman was partnered with uh, Gattuso, who was a big, who was the president of Liberty Property Trust. So they're the guys that did the wharf, the DC wharf. So we ended up being selected out of those folks, and now we're working on our first phase, which is about a $480 million first phase. It is uh, 620 apartments, uh, two lab buildings, 230 to 150,000 square foot lab buildings, a 650 car parking garage, and a, a four or five star hotel uh, that, we're all, that are all in design right now as we speak. Uh, we plan to break ground early next year on, on the whole development but each building will start in sequence. Right? We're not going to start all six buildings at once. But we plan to have them all done by 2024, and that will be the first phase of development. Uh, we, we hired uh, Moody. So just to let you know, as a part of that project, we're very concerned, and, and part of our ethos was to bring in African-American and women-owned development team. And on all of that project, we have over 50% participation of African-American and women on professional services. So, for example, uh, we, we scoured the city looking for African-American architects. Uh, we, I don't know if you know Kelly Maiello. Uh, they're probably the largest in the city. Emmanuel Kelly, he worked on, for example, I think the last project he had was the convention center. But he's a 20-person uh, shop, and he, he just isn't big enough to do the work we were talking about. So. We actually went out to Ohio and found a group called um, um, Leslie Moody Moody Nolan. Moody Nolan. Uh-huh. I don't know. Uh-huh. You all know Moody Nolan, but they're the largest African American uh, architecture firm in the country, and they just won the 2021 AIA award. So we brought them in, and they're the architect of record uh, on the project. Uh, we also brought in Rodriguez. Do you know Lou Rodriguez? I've heard of Lou. Yeah. He's a civil engineer in Philadelphia, a, a, a Latino brother. We've known him for a long time. He, Pannoni had had Navy Yard exclusively for the last 20 years. They're now sharing those responsibilities with Rodriguez. So the project moving forward, they're about 50-50 on that project. Uh, we brought in all women down landscape architects. We brought in 
you know, 20 firms that are minority Mm -hmm. and women-owned, MEP, landscape, architecture, et cetera, that are working right now. In fact, in the first four months of this year, we spent nearly $8 million on minority and women-owned firms. so if you think about procurement and the issue around procurement in Philadelphia, you'd be hard pressed to find a company that spent $8 million on minority and women-owned businesses, right? So we've done it in the first four months. We're expecting our average spend on women and minority-owned businesses with the majority needs to be for minority, not women, to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million a year for the next 15 years. Excellent. So, yeah. so that's that's part of what we're doing. It's more than just what we're building. It's who we're building it with, and who gets to use those services once it's built. Excellent. That's what's most important to us. Um, yeah. I mean, so we're excited that we're actually a part of the team, so that we we can keep that front and forward. I mean, fortunately, Ensemble has really, you know, they have accepted and adopted and, and embraced, you know, all of that. But it definitely. We're always challenging every conversation. You know, we're we're bringing it to even our uh, the the majority firms that we are using. We're like, well, what what does your uh, personnel look like? Is it diverse? That's something that you need to think about also. So we're challenging everybody, uh, which is important. Yeah. Well, we tell literally everybody: if you don't change course, we're not working with you. So, yeah. I mean, we're, we're and I and I think. The key for us is that if you're in a place where you have influence and you don't use it, shame on you. And so right. we're just at a point where we're not willing to to really take anybody's approach for granted because we believe our approach is the right way to go. So, you know, we had, we had a conversation with the Burst organization. I, I know you, you probably know them. They have Penn's Landing, which is another $2 billion project. And uh, they asked us about... Uh, they're looking for a 20% minority investor and developer as a part of their team. And the first thing Leslie and I said to them is that, you know, we may not be the right team for you because if we come in and work with you, we're not, we're not a pass through group. Like we're going to insist that you bring in black architects and black engineers and, and, and Latino engineers and women on own businesses. And they've got to be a part of this design team or it's not going to work. I said, right. you just, you have to know that up front. We're not because we're, we will fight. So, oh, good. Yeah, now you have to do that. Right. And yeah. so by creating that system, that's what really starts to force demand. That's what we're seeing is forcing demand for, for uh, use of businesses. Excellent. Uh-huh. I think we did, initially, I think we talked about eight developers now. They all have different answers. But for this one, how do you guys build your internal development company? I mean, we get answers from the team. You know, what what, are you, what is your internal development company looks like, and you know, what type of traits do you go after some of the folks that you bring on board? It's so, it's <laughs> the question is so timely because we are right at that. We're point. talking about it every day. <laughs> oh my gosh, where we know that we need to hire additional people and have already started to, um, but we started to really structure the, the the org chart, and we don't want to get too large, right? But we also know we have way too much work and too much in our in our pipeline, our portfolio to to not bring on additional people. So, I mean, one of the things that it's very important to us is bringing in folks younger than we are, that they can really get exposure, they can grow, um, and they can advance themselves um, in the career, in their career. So we are, we have brought it on. And the other thing that's important to us is just like uh, majority firms, they are able to bring on their, their daughters and their sons and they can legacy. continue to build legacy, right? We want to do that at all, as all as they are. So Greg has, um, a couple of his sons that work with us, my, my goddaughter, um, that she works for us. And we just said today, I said, they're so worthy. They all have master's degrees. Hey, well, has a master. they're, they're incredibly, they're incredibly talented. Right? Oh, they really are. They really yeah, are. So our, our, like, our, our three kids are the most educated of the group. So. <laughs> no question. No, no. It's, and it's, it's wonderful. Right. And we're right. creating a path for them if they elect to go in that direction. Right. But it's, it's important that we have been able to create it if that's something that they want to do. But, 
you know, one has their master's in construction management, another one in master's in finance, another one in master's in urban development. So it's very, they're all very appropriate and relevant degrees for what we're doing. But we're also needing a first Cheap. Yeah. Right now they are. They're not going to stay cheap for long. Um, because this very, much. That's all I know. We've been very thrifty. We've been very thrifty and frugal, but we are also recognizing that that is no longer the market. Like the, here's, some here's, of the salaries we're hearing are daunting. Uh, they're insane. <laughs> and and here's the thing. This is the dilemma that African-American and uh, owned businesses are going to face. 96% of African-American owned businesses are solo operators, right? They're yeah. solo entrepreneurs. This is across all industries. And the biggest way to ensure failure is to own a business by yourself. And so what we realized is that we needed to be more than one person owning a business. We were always careful about growing it because we didn't have the money, right? We didn't want to go out of business. So Leslie and I had to come up with all of these creative ways of staying afloat among all of them being as thrifty as you can possibly be. I don't know anybody that can have a dollar spread further than we can. We do, look, we'll do our own designs if we have to. We'll we'll wait a couple of months to get an architect in and we'll do the designs ourselves. We'll run all the financials, we'll make sure it works. And then we'll think about getting an architect. But because that money spent is money gone. And so, so, you know, when you start dealing with majority firms that have full staffs, they don't think that way. They just spend the money, but because they have so much more capital available to them to do that, but you can't grow this business without people, you know, you, you just can't do it. And so as what you have to think about is what are the skills? And one thing that Leslie and I did is we didn't kind of build this business on on friendship really was built on skill sets right on we have compatible and comparable skill sets and we kind of do what we do in our space and we're looking for people and whenever we have the conversation we don't ask who we like we ask what their skills are and you know and those skills don't have to be fully developed in real estate but do they have a good financial background do they know how to work with excel if they do that we can have them working with us in this space you know, do they understand community? Do they know how to work with communities? You know, are they good community organizers, community developments? Do they write well? Writing well becomes a very important skill in this industry. Leslie and I found that out the hard way because when we started submitting a bunch of stuff and we had people do it and they can't write, we have to rewrite the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, you, you start looking for, we start, we want young people because we can't find seasoned people of color to get into our space. So we're basically organically growing it, but we're doing it around specific skills that we think we can develop into, into something. Well, similar. And the main thing is just be bright. Yeah. I mean, we, we say that yeah. also. Just About smart anything people. else, if you're smart, right. Smart yeah. and motivated. Right. Yes. We don't care yes. what background you came from. It doesn't matter. Look, I, 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 we, none of us came from real estate, right? Right. But well, that's the beauty really of real estate. Right. But you got to be smart. Yep. On on a similar front, um, how do you kind of foster and grow your external relationships? Are you on boards or how do you source your deals currently? You know, we we never started. We did that sourcing deals. Yeah, yeah. We always yeah, try to stay under the radar. Sure, yes, indeed. Yes, we did. Yes, and the reason was we thought people would take them, take the deals from us because they always people. If we had a good deal, somebody with more money could get it. Right. Yeah. So, so we we primarily kept those hidden. It wasn't until we had success that actually these boards started reaching out to us mm. and asking us to participate. Leslie sits okay. on a couple of boards. I sit on a couple of boards, but that hasn't been the way that we built our business. No, I was going to say that's not how we sort of deals even now. Mm-mm. Yeah. We have been, we've tried to stay quiet, frankly, and, you know, just put our heads down, put the work in. I, we've not, I mean, I'm not a big fan of networking. I, I think it's nonsense. I think people <laughs> think it's helpful, but I, so. Uh, it's not nonsense. It's not nonsense. Don't, 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 no, it's not. No, it's it not. works. It, it works. It does work. <laughs> I found to be a relationship business. <laughs> you just well, network. You just network differently, Greg. That's all. Like now that you're on the um, 
Chester Economic Development Council um, board. Yeah. You're doing a lot of networking with your board members. You just don't like having to go to social events. Right. Well, right. Events. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to just sit around and talk to people and, right. and chat. I mean, and I, you're still old school and pick up a right. phone and call people and and that's networking. You just do it differently, but you network a lot. Yeah, maybe you're right. Greg, you talked a little bit about modular housing. You mind just expanding that? What's your what's your oh company's? My gosh. We, are, we are all in on modular. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Modular. See, think about every industry you know. Think about the automotive industry. Think about clothing manufacturers. Think about everything that's made. It's all made unless you're getting, you know, cheap labor in a third world country. It's all made in a factory by some robotic element, right? The only exception to that is real estate development, where they're making it the same way they made it 100 years ago. And all you're doing, all they're doing is charging you more for it. So you're building a house and you're paying not only all the architects, engineers, and all the people to get it permitted. Now you've got to pay the plumber, the laborer. The, uh, the electrician, the carpenter, the masonry, the, the roofer, you know, and then the person I'm supervising, right? And then the finance people above that. And Leslie and I always believe there's got to be a more efficient way to do this, right? And the efficiency comes when you have a factory built product. You can actually design it correctly, build it in, in actually comfortable conditions. You don't have weather as your enemy uh, when you're building a modular box. And if you can develop a box that is like a, a Honda Accord, and you're building the same type of thing over and over again, you can actually get really great economic efficiencies. And so that's what we find. We've, we're, we're trying to really master building these boxes that bring great economies of scale, and we want to do it in a factory setting. Uh, Leslie and I also observed that when we went to modular factories, we actually saw women working in there. They were working a lot. They were working as plumbers. They were working. So, uh, so what was interesting is the climate had something to do with gender in this industry, and that if we can create a better climate for women, maybe that's the way to get women in. And if we were able to get modular manufacturing in Philadelphia rather than the outskirts of Pennsylvania, that's how we can get more people of color in manufacturing and so and and in construction. And so that's really where our focus is now: is how do we take a modular format? bring it into a place that's diverse and get more women, people of color to actually work in that industry and drive more affordable pricing around the whole housing model. So we think we can do that. We've been working on that now for what, a year and a half, two years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've done three, but, three or four have done, buildings. Yeah, I was going to say, we bought modular coming right out the box. Our first yeah. project was designed modularly. So but now we see dating back 20... What, yeah. 2010? Yeah. 2010. We, we've been building modular since 2010. But now we see systemically how it can add to both women and, and minorities getting into industry. That it's a, a, a direct line to get them skills in the industry where the unions wouldn't get them in. So yeah. we have another way to do it. Uh, so we're like big, big fans of that. Yeah. We think... Yeah, we, we think that it will be the next the phase. We're actually, we were awarded the tiny home development. I don't know if you were aware of that. that I've heard of that, but I didn't know that. I didn't know you guys got that. Yeah, there, there was a, uh, Alessa, can you explain what happened with the uh, homeless encampment? Yeah, I mean, you. I'm sure you were aware of the one that was on the parkway, but then right. there was also another encampment on our site, actually, um, at 20th and Ridge, and they were there because it was proximate to PHA's headquarters. Um, so from that came uh, negotiations with the organizations to find them housing, and one of the, well, there's two, two projects right now that um, are on the books that are really addressing the concerns that they uh, had been discussing and negotiating. One is in the Northeast, which is more a transitional um, homeless um, facility. And then the one that we were awarded in West Philadelphia. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, but the one that we were awarded in West Philadelphia is for people transitioning permanently out of homelessness. So they are actually full apartments, just smaller. And that's why they're calling them tiny homes. They're they're less than 700 square feet for um, two bedrooms and, and about 400 square feet um, for single for single unit um, apartments. So that's 375. OK, OK. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we're doing. We were awarded that uh, earlier this year. Um, February, yeah, and we're unleashed for us to really get going. I think it was uh, March that uh, we were unleashed. So we so are. We, yeah, we're doing those in West Philly. Those are being placed in West Philly. And we're doing 20 of those units as and it will be the first done in Philadelphia. And we plan on building them modularly. So what we'd like to do is master that. How do we master the tiny home, the tiny space development in a manufactured environment? That's our goal. Okay. Uh, That's excellent. Well, and we don't think that it has to be limited to the homeless community either. No. There are there are millennials that are very cost conscious that want to keep that you know, disposable income to do other things, but they want to live by themselves. And this could right. give them an opportunity or live in, in a community, right? So if you have right. uh, a development where you have multiple kind of cottage, you know, kind of a village of these mm-hmm. tiny homes, they could also be for millennials. And, and say a community garden that goes with it, right? We can build these homes. Right. We can either rent them or buy them, but the rental rate, you know, say they're renting this for $600 a month, right? And they have their own space. It's brand new. It's in the community. It gives them the ability to to have real disposable income, where where the cost of real estate isn't overburdening your life. Uh, but now you also have an environment where the community where you can participate in other community activities. That's that's what we'd like this to morph into uh, in terms of how we create the space. Yeah, we had a question kind of morphed in as we started talking to developers and uh, you know considering like some of the folks who are aspiring to be developers. This one really falls. <laughs> no, it's a perfect question for you all. Now, how do you work in your personal life? When you know, I, mean, I used to work for Michaels, and I met with the people's housing authority, housing authority, and uh, I admit I, I kind of neglected the whole thing. I, I didn't have balance, but, but how do you all do it? But look, I Leslie. Leslie has had the golden I'm, I'm a failure. I, I admit. <laughs> uh, look, I can tell you, at Merck, I was a failure. I was an abject failure in taking care of my family. I had incredible success there, but I failed at my family. And that is a fact. And so, but when I met Leslie and she was at the Goldenberg Group, she would have her daughter in the office when she was in the office. Most of the time she wasn't. She wouldn't even come in. She was one of those <laughs> early adopters. Like, you know, uh, Leslie, if there was a Zoom call, I don't think I would have ever met Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie was all about her daughter from the moment I met her. And I admired that more than anything else that I knew about her. And I said, that's the type of person I need to be. And, and, and when we started this company, that was the one rule we had is that family will always come first. So whenever we're on a call with anybody and her daughter calls or my son calls, we let people know, oh, that's my daughter. That's my son. I got to go. Or I'll be right back. We don't care who it is. Mm-hmm. We, don't know. we really don't. So I, I feel like I had the best family balance I've ever had in my life because I, I, we started this company with that mindset that that is going to be what's first. Yeah, we do. And, and we, we, live, comes we live by them. it. Mm-hmm. We live by it. Now, and I will say that. Oh, yeah. Our kids absolutely know it. But I will say our spouses are wonderful because they're we work. Amazing. All the time, though. So, all the time. So, <laughs> I mean, all we will stop. We will be interrupt. We'll and we'll carve out the the, the appropriate time to, to do stuff with our families. But other than that, we're constantly working and we're constantly thinking. We're constantly strategizing. And right. he and I are on the phone all the time. All the time. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's awful. It's awful. <laughs> but we we what we do is is. Whenever our child needs something, we're there for them. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, yeah. child events, we don't yeah. prioritize that. And we don't tell, we don't have that demand of anybody who works with us. If they say uh-huh. they got something for their kid, we're like, we get it. Yeah. We're not gonna, we wouldn't sacrifice our time for you if our kid has a priority, if your kid has a priority. Right. And 
and you're dealing with us, you've got a problem. That's how right. we like, there's something and wrong. And we don't and we don't micromanage. We always say, hey, look, if you, if you want to be up at 10 o'clock at night doing your work because you know right. you have something to do with your daughter or your, or your son in the middle of the day, fine. It's all about production. It's all about, it's you know, just getting the outcomes and getting it yeah. done. So how we, you do not, it, that's up to you. At all. Mm -hmm. We're outcome driven. So we yep. have to be. If you can get some, if you're that skilled that you can get work done ethically, you know, we're not trying to, we're not trying to break any laws here. Yeah. But if you can get any work done in four hours and it takes somebody else four weeks, uh, we don't care. Like it, from from a, an entrepreneurial standpoint, what would you rather have? <laughs> I'd rather right. have somebody right. get stuff done fast. Yeah, so that's what we measure you on: is how good are you? Can you get it done fast? And if you do it, you have free time. You need to go play basketball and do it. You need to go do it. We don't right. care. Yeah. Yeah. This, this next question I had to throw in just for you guys being put up here. And I know uh, Leslie Collective, uh, but since the George Floyd incident, how, uh, how have things changed or have changed for black and brown developers? If, if, oh, I should carry out that, if at all. <laughs> A lot of talk. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if we've seen. I don't think we've seen the effect yet. Um, like Greg said, it's a lot of talk. Um, I think that there's initiatives out there that people are trying, like, you know, I know I've had a lot of conversations with the Commerce Department and PIDC and PRA. And, you know, you see the accelerator fund that they created and, you know, the recovery fund money that's coming in. You know, the city wants to do something um, you know, to, to help black and brown businesses and developer, black and brown developers. So I do think that there, there's a heightened sensitivity to it, um, which is causing a lot more discussion and at least thought being put forth to more creative approaches. Now, where it takes us is still yet to be seen. But I think at least more attention is being given to it. And, and what I will say is it's emboldened in people that thought that, for example, PIDC has been a great, in the same way that Fulton has been wonderful to us, so has PIDC. Mm -hmm. and, and they, in the way that Leslie and I have insisted on inclusion and diversity in our business model, they're requiring it. And they're, I think they feel emboldened to stand up to it. And so an organization like them, where they, they may not have taken such a strong position is taking a stronger position than what we've seen in the past. Uh, I sit on the board in Chester County, an economic development council. It's a group that's largely conservative. It's 90% white. And we're having serious conversations about equity and inclusion in that county. And so when I say a lot of talk, some of that talk is actually meaningful because if we were before the George Floyd incident, there would be no talk. There was no discussion. Right. Exactly. And, and I don't think it's just George Floyd. I think it's George Floyd and the combination of, of what happened with the virus. Because the reality is that the George Floyd incidents have been happening for years. That wasn't new. What was new is that it happened in a framework where we were all watching the same movie. Right? So for the first time... You didn't have the distractions of kids out playing sports or moms at work or some kids at school or everybody sitting at home watching that happen. Uh -huh. And it's, it was almost impossible to reconcile during COVID that it was anything but, but uh, <laughs> I won't mean this, it means spirited doesn't do, doesn't uh, provide the right word, but anything but a dehumanizing, right? And if you couldn't get to that point and recognize right. that, clearly a problem with you. And I think that's what that incident did in combination with, with us being at home because of COVID. I don't think it was the incidental blow. Uh -huh. That's a good point. La yeah, last, last question that we have. Um, if you were to do it all again, would you do anything differently? <laughs> I would have had more money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. But you know what? We, 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 just, we just didn't have it, right? So right. that would have been a nicer way well, to do it. Whatever we had, we but... spent. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> Every penny we had. I, I will say this, that the journey has been gratifying overall 
it has been the hardest thing I've ever done. And I would imagine, Leslie, it was the hardest thing you've ever done. Uh-huh. And there were so many times that we know others would have quit and did quit along our journey. We've seen people give up, start and give up and get out. And we had, a, we think, a harder road and we just didn't give up. And, and the resiliency of never giving up is something to behold when you look at what you're capable of doing. And it's that that I, uh, that I honor more than anything is that, you know, just the resiliency that we've had over these 13 years to get to where we are today and and the opportunity that it gives us to for the next 13 years, I think, are pretty incredible. But that is, that's the lesson in all of this, is the journey. Mm-hmm. And I would add one thing, because you mentioned that a lot of our businesses are sole proprietors. I do think that it has, it has served us well that it was two of us Yep. That we're able to really start the business and, and persevere, persevere through the trials because yep. when one was discouraged, the other one was strong, you know, exactly. and vice versa. And because we all had our moments, you know, we both had our moments like, wow, this, this is rough. This, this is rough. rough. You know? hey, and not only our moments, but our thousand moments. Well, because we had children going to college and like having major life moments, you know, that that we still had to, we had to accommodate for. And it was just tough. Yeah. Yeah. Her her doesn't say in the past, like, hey, you know, other people have the rich uncles in the family, like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, wow. and, and look, we have people that are now working for us who watched our journey and weren't willing to step in with us because it was too hard, and we right. understood it. Yeah. So, so it's it's it, it's a journey that is not for the meek. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. For sure. For sure. I tell people like if uh, it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. No. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, you're right, Steve. But, but there's nothing, when we talk about being able to spend the time with our children and our families, to be able to get up every day and literally do what we want to do, that's what we saw in real estate. That's what I saw in Ken Goldenberg 20 years ago, that this was a guy that got up every day and did what he wanted. And I thought, gosh, what does that feeling feel like? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, right? I didn't know that feeling, but I know it now. Yeah. No, that's an excellent start. And our goal is to become the largest African-American developer on the East Coast. Nice. So we hope to build to $10 billion of assets under management in the next 10 years. That's where we go. like to be. Uh, but no, to do no, that, no, we can't that, work man. on small stuff. Yeah, everybody improves with that platform. And with that platform, what we can do is now be a catalyst for other uh, black and brown developers. If, so when we had to joint venture partner, we had to joint venture with a predominantly white, white developer. There weren't any predominantly black developers who's, who we can rely upon for creditworthiness or for uh, any potential guarantees. But if the younger developers coming up are looking for that platform, we would want to be part of that platform mm-hmm. uh, where they could joint venture with us and we can yeah. share with them our model about a different way of doing it, not just getting the project done, but getting it done with, you know, black, black, uh, um, black and brown owned architectural firms, uh, um, black and women owned uh, law firms, you know, black, uh, Hispanic owned engineering firms. I mean, that's our model. So it's, it's not just a mosaic on it. You have to think what comes with mosaic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got to jump onto a 430. Yeah. So it's no, been great guys. That. Appreciate okay, it guys. Thank you. Thank you. Another day at the shop. Content they can't get anywhere else.